Good morning, brothers and sisters. If you don't know me, I'm Brent Osterberg. I'm one of the pastors at Living Hope Bible Church in Mansfield, Texas, a church plant sent out from Calvary over eight years ago. It's amazing to, to say that it's been over eight years since we planted our church. And so it is good to be here this morning, and what I tell people is my second favorite church in the world. It would be weird if my church weren't the first favorite, right? So um, I want to begin by reading the word of the Lord with you as we start. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6, so we can read our text together. And I hope that you are ready to glory in Christ this morning together with me. This is Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Praise the Lord. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing. Gracious Father God, what a wonderful text of Scripture to spend the next 45 minutes thinking about together with the people of God. Your plan to bring sinners to yourself. We, the rebels, we, the wretches, and yet you setting your love upon us in Christ, sending him to be the propitiation for our sins, giving us peace when we deserve only your judgment. Make our hearts to revel in this today, God. Make our hearts to boast in Christ Jesus so that we say along with the song, all I have is Christ. We need you this morning so that we see the glory of the Lord and by the power of the Spirit are, are transformed into the next degree of glory as we become more like your Son. We cannot be guarded from distraction without your grace. But we know, Lord God, there are many distractions within our hearts and, and outside of us as well. So please give us the grace to focus and to listen and to hear with ears and with hearts and to receive by faith what we encounter. And also, Lord God, to go from here, applying these things by the power of the Spirit and exalting you high in our lives as a result of what you bring to us today. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2004, Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, released too much acclaim. It broke box office records as the highest grossing rated R movie at that time. The movie was rated R, of course, because of the graphic depiction of scourging and crucifixion that previous movies had kept rather mild. The scenes were hard to watch and many tears were shed throughout 
theaters across the world. And if you've seen the movie, a question you need to ask of this movie is, does this movie clarify why Jesus was experiencing the brutality that you saw on the screen? Is this movie clear about why Jesus underwent the torment unto death? It would be difficult to watch a depiction of any historical figure tortured like that on the screen. The movie shows the crucifixion and even the resurrection, but why Jesus died and rose again is imperative. It's imperative to a sinner's salvation. But the movie is not clear about why. You see that it happens, but you don't hear why. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. It tells us that he died, that he was buried, that he was raised, but also why? For our sins. So as we come to Verses 4 through 6 in Isaiah 53. You need to realize what comes a bit before it, and I'll just give you a, a brief overview of verses 1 through 3. We did a sermon series on this at our church last year, and, and my fellow pastor, Ben Forbes, took those three verses, 1 through 3, and helped us understand this about those verses. It depicts the way Jesus' own people, the Jews, perceived their own Messiah. They saw him as without worth. Pastor Ben said, they didn't give Jesus a second look as a leader. And we would have done the same left to ourselves. But what we have here in our context uh, is, according to one view, and I, it's the view I take, that Isaiah 53 is giving the account of a future group of Jews who have experienced revival, and they're now looking back upon the way that they as a people treated the Messiah, their Messiah, and they lament. Here in our sermon text in verses 4 through 6, their lament continues into what is considered the heart of Isaiah 53. One of the clearest gospel passages in all of the Bible. And if you read Isaiah before, you know that there are four servant songs referring to the Messiah in this prophet. This is the fourth of the servant songs relating to Jesus, focusing on the Messiah. And we find here that the servant is a substitute. The servant is a substitute. But more than that, a substitute for sinners. A substitute for us. I want you to pay attention as we're walking through these verses to the language. Pay attention especially to the pronouns as we walk through them. And you'll get this immense understanding of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. There are thousands upon thousands of things in your life that are important for you to know. But... None is more important than knowing what Christ Jesus was doing on the cross. Nothing else is essential in this way. 
Was he dying on the cross? Yes, he died on the cross. But why did he die? Getting this wrong is of eternal consequence. And for believers to forget this will only lead to the lie of self-sufficiency and self-centeredness. We need to remember the gospel every day. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves every single day because every day we sin in some ways that reveal that in that moment, we didn't believe the gospel. Functionally, in that moment, we didn't believe the gospel. You could say, well, yes, confessionally, I believe the gospel. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can say that any day at any time. But functionally, practically, in the moment when we sin, we're not believing the gospel. And so it helps us to return time and time again so that we don't engage in sins of self-atonement or we don't use demeaning words or we don't promote ourselves in our lives. And so as we return to the gospel again, our text shows us three facets of Christ's substitution to believe and never forget. Three facets of Christ's substitution to believe and never forget. Number one, our sorrows, his shoulders. Number two, our guilt, his suffering. And number three, our straying, God's solution. Let's look at our first point in the morning. Our sorrows, his shoulders. Look with me at verse four. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Now, to understand verse 4, it helps to read verse 3. I'll read that and explain. Verse 3 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Verse 3, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And verse 4 here tells us why this is. Why was he a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief? It was our sorrows and our griefs that Jesus was bearing. But that's not how his people saw it. In verse 4, we understand that in being crucified, they thought that he was getting what he deserved from God. You see that there? We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. They believed he must have been suffering because of his own sins. Like Job's friends, they could not fathom someone suffering that, like that unless God was punishing them for their personal sin. In their mind, people suffer for their wrongdoing. People suffer for their transgressions, period. That's the way they were thinking. So they saw Jesus hanging, and they treated him as if he were hanging because of his own sins. But you and I know he knew no sin. We have the word griefs and the word sorrows here. Now, um, if you study the, the scholars, you look at commentaries, you can understand very quickly that griefs could also be translated as sicknesses, and sorrows could also be translated as pains. The idea here in this verse is that Jesus bore the burden of our sin along with the effects of our sin. 
The sorrows associated with sickness and pain are a reality because of the fall, because of sin. If sin was not in the world, sickness, pain, and sorrow would not be in the world. It's because of our sins that those things are present in reality. Therefore, as our substitute, I like what Alec Motyer says about this, as our substitute, Jesus dealt with every aspect of our need. Our guilt, yes, we'll look look at that in our second point. We'll talk about the guilt that he bore for us on the cross, but also the effects of our sins, the consequences of our sins in this present world. He dealt with every aspect of our need. Because of Jesus, sickness and its grief will only be a memory for us. Think about this with me as we look at Revelation 21, verse 4. Well-known verse, but We'll do well to return to it again and think that this is a reality because of God's love for us in Christ. Revelation 21, verse 4. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You like that they're referred to as former things? The former things have passed away. Tears wiped away. Mourning wiped away. That's because of Jesus. That's because of God's work for us through Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we need to glory in the comprehensive nature of Jesus' substitution. He came to pay for our guilt before God and to ensure that every trace of sin's consequences would be erased finally and fully. Jesus felt ultimate pain so that there would be a day in the future for each of us when we would never again feel pain. Because Jesus carried our sorrows in gut-wrenching pain. Not only will we never feel the pain of hell, we will fully and finally be saved from all of the unbearable chronic pain and nagging pain of this life, along with all of the grief in our hearts that we experience because of it. For unbelievers who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, this life is as good as it gets. And that becomes an appeal to anyone in the room who doesn't trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. This life is as good as it gets for you. But if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've repented and trusted in Jesus Christ, then for us as believers, this is as bad as it gets. And the future for us in the presence of our God is without all sin and its consequences. They are former things. Think of all of the physical pain you've experienced in your life, just for a moment. Now think of all of the grief it's caused you and all the grief it's caused your loved ones. Because of Jesus, that will one day be no more. There are pains that we've just come to live with as something that's normal. So much so that we have forgotten what it feels like to not hurt in that way. 
Because Jesus took our place, that's only temporary. That's only temporary. Brothers and sisters, I hope that you ask God for healing in this life. That's a good prayer to pray. We should. But remember that it's not promised to us in this life. But it is in the next because of God's love in Christ. What is promised is full healing and joy in glory through Christ. Let's make that a praise in our prayer lives more frequently than we do. Regardless of your physical condition now, pray and praise God because of the future bliss you know you will enjoy because of Christ. Don't allow your hearts to grow bitter, brothers and sisters, as you sit under the griefs of this fallen world. But look to the better country where you belong knowing that Christ has opened the path that leads there through his substitution. I want to share with you another text that is a good parallel for us to think about as we, we meditate on the comprehensive nature of Jesus' substitution. Look at this promise that we know is ours in Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. We know this is true for us in Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Light momentary affliction, but I want to draw your attention to what he says here about that affliction. He says it is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Beyond all comparison. That sounds strange. So what you're saying, Paul, is that God is using the affliction to make the experience of my future better. In some way. There's some mystery here, we know. But somehow, whatever you're experiencing now, whatever pain, whatever suffering, whatever grief, you know now in this life, under the curse, because of sin, this affliction actually is being used by God to make your future experience in glory better in some way. It's amazing. That's true for us in Christ. I think you probably sing a song here that we sing at Living Hope Bible Church is Christ the sure and steady anchor. The line at the end of that song that gets me every time says that the calm will be the better for the storms we have endured. That's only true because of God's love in Christ. The calm, then, will be better because we're walking through affliction now. This is as bad as it gets for us because of God's love in Christ. Why did Jesus die? Why was he crucified? What was he doing on the cross? Number two, we see that our guilt we see our guilt, his suffering. Our guilt, his suffering. If you haven't already, in our text, I want you to start paying more attention to the pronouns. And you really start to notice the substitution language that we see here in this text. See, because uh, we, we read verse 5. I'm going to read verse 5, and, I, and, and then I'll tell you what it doesn't say, right? And it'll help us to see more clearly what it does say. Let me read verse 5. 
but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. It doesn't say he was pierced for his transgressions or he was crushed for his iniquities. No. It doesn't say we were pierced for our transgressions or we were crushed for our iniquities. It doesn't say that. He didn't suffer for his sins because he has none. We didn't suffer for our sins because he took our place. Pierced. Crushed. Those two words are actually very brutal words. Pierced suggests a piercing unto death. Crushed means, as one commentator says, broken to pieces or even being pulverized. This is the effect of him standing in our place as one condemned. Another author, another author says that this is not sins that pierced him as in we hurt him so badly with our betrayal. That's not this. No, he is experiencing the punishment we deserve for our sins. It's not like his, his heart hurt so badly because we betrayed him. That's not what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with punishment. He's experiencing the punishment we deserve for our sins. A theological term called penal substitutionary atonement. And being our substitute, he paid a penalty. That is, he was punished for guilt. The guilt came from our sins and required a punishment in order to satisfy God's perfect justice. We see this clearly in the second half of verse 5 with the word chastisement. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. This is punishment. John Oswald says, Jesus is not suffering with his people. He is suffering for them. When Jesus took on humanity, he was then able to sympathize with us in our weakness since he became one of us. He knows what it's like to walk through this life as a true man. Certainly, as a human person, he suffered in simply being human. But what happened on the cross is not a suffering we will ever be able to relate to. Think about that for a minute. What he's doing on the cross is something we'll never be able to relate to. And that's a glorious thing. Praise God, you'll never taste the wrath of God because Jesus already did that for you on the cross. So you can't, you, you can't get inside your brain actually the depth of what he experienced on the cross for you. It's far deeper than we'll ever understand. We can't sympathize with that because we didn't feel it. We don't drink the full cup of God's wrath, so we can't relate. But we can worship. We can worship. Because Jesus suffered for us on the cross. Not with us, but for us. His death is completely unique in that sense. Do you realize that? His death is in a category all by itself. No one else atones for the sins of the elect. Only Jesus. And what does the chastisement bring us? The text says the chastisement brought us peace. 
peace. What is this peace? It's peace with God. Harmony with God. Where there was conflict, we now have harmony with him. I remember one time sitting in the pews here at Calvary Bible Church and Pastor Dan was preaching a sermon and he did something shocking. He walked out from behind the pulpit <laughs> and he went over to this piano and he showed us, here's what harmony is. Here's what dissonance is. You play like a B and a B flat together and you're like, those notes don't belong together. That's offensive. They're enemies. But then you, you get two notes, like, like a, a third and a fifth together. Two notes that, that blend, that mean Ah, beautiful music. They belong together. We have harmony with God because of Jesus Christ, because of the chastisement that brought us peace. He was the one punished. And now we have harmony with God. Whereas before, we were enemies. We sang it, didn't we? In the song. We were his enemies, but now we're at his table. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 3. One of my favorite verses in the entire New Testament. 1 Peter 3.18. Substitution language in this text as well. 1 Peter 3.18. Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous, that's him, for the unrighteous, that's you and me, why? Why do you do that? Why do you engage in that substitution? That he might bring us to God. What is the most glorious thing about the gospel? We get God. That's the most glorious thing about the gospel. Forgiveness? Yes, it's wonderful. Redemption? Wonderful. We'll one day experience heaven. We'll get to see loved ones who've died in Christ. All oh, wonderful. But that's all so that we can enjoy God. Live with him in perfect communion and fellowship in glory. And now be at peace with him so that we can delight in him and enjoy him. Do we see that? Do you see that? He is what the gospel is all about. It's it's all about getting us as enemies and wretches to the God that we have sinned against. God is the one who is offended. God is the one that we are hostile against, yet he is the one who provided the remedy in his son and punished him for our sins so that we would know reconciliation with God. So many people think they are in good terms with God. They say, I'm not as bad as a lot of people out there. God knows my heart. God knows I'm trying. He's a forgiving God. No, he is a forgiving God. It's true. But he is also holy God. And he will not lower his standards. If he did, he would not be God. And so, someone who says, yes, I'm fine with God, I'm on good terms with God, he's a forgiving God, needs to know that there's only peace with God on the basis of Jesus' death and resurrection. And that benefit 
is only for those who repent and trust in Christ. That's a beautiful reality of his forgiving heart, but it's only on the basis of his son's death and, resur- death and resurrection. And so we need to be clear about that with people. When, when they say, yeah, God knows my heart. He's a forgiving God. I'll be okay when I get to the gates. I say, but what about your sin? Justice has to be served. God's not going to lower his standards. So what does that mean? That means that either we must pay for our sins for eternity in hell, or Jesus pays, them, pays for them for us on the cross. There's only two options. There's only two. Unless you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord, you are an enemy of God, whether you feel like it or not. If you are not trusting in Him, you're an enemy of God, whether you feel like it or not. There's many people walking around, and they think they're on good terms with God, but they're not. They feel like they are, but they've never truly embraced Christ by faith. God must deal with our sin. He is holy. He's good and he's loving too, which means that he provided the remedy. Pierced, crushed, punished, wounded unto death, that's what Jesus got, though we were the deserving party. We get peace. We get peace. We get God. What love is this? What love is this? So believers, look to the cross. And when you look to the cross, what do you see? What do you see when you look to the cross. Do you see Christ as example? Yes, we see Christ as example of sacrificial love. We see Christ as example according to 1 Peter chapter 2 where, where he did not revile in return, but he kept entrusting himself to God as he was on his way to the cross. Yes, Jesus Christ is our example. But Christ's example is not the heart of the gospel. Look to the cross and see your sin. It required the death of the Son of God. How humbling is that? And then see also the amazing love of God who sent his son and therefore gave us peace with him. So what happens there is you're humbled as you see what your sins deserve when you see Christ hanging on the cross in that way. But at the same time, you see the amazing love of God who provided his own son to bring you to himself. And then you can rejoice. You can be humbled and rejoice as you look to the cross. God is doing this, though he was the offended party. What love is this? What was God doing when Jesus was on the cross? What was happening there on that cross? The why is so important, and we see that also in our third point. Our straying, God's solution. Our straying, God's solution. Go back with me to our text. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We get some more detail on the need for the servant's substitution here in this verse. We strayed from God like sheep. Now, we might be tempted to think that this is accidental. We poor sheep just got lost. It's not our fault. We just, we were looking for food and we got lost. This is an accident. No, 
That can't be the case because the text reads, we have turned everyone to his own way. We turned away from God's way to go our way. Now, that's a big problem. Why is that a big problem? Because the Bible says that God made us in his image for his glory. And it also says that the earth and everything in it, the world and all its inhabitants, belong to the Lord. And the Lord is righteous and he loves righteous deeds. And God has given us every good and perfect gift that comes down from above, from his hand. And yet, with all of that, we have gone astray. We've gone to our own way. We've strayed from him. This is nothing short of rebellion. The text reads as well, all we, but then specifies everyone. All we, and then everyone. I like what Alec Motyer says about this as well. He says, there is common culpability, all we, right? But also individual responsibility, every one. That matters because we cannot blame a herd mentality. Everybody else was doing it. I just followed the crowd. No, all we, but everyone, each person in sin, we have chosen our own way. We've looked at God and said, no, I am my own authority. I am the one calling the shots. It's my life, my body, my heart, my opportunities. I will do as I please. And it's sobering to ever think about the fact that without Christ, we were like that. But we were. We can't say everyone else was doing it. Each person went aside to his own way. There's no excuse. I once talked to a young man who believed that he was in a good place spiritually because his sins were victimless. He admitted he was a sinner, but claimed that his sins were not that bad because they didn't hurt anyone else. He said that, yes, they're sins of the heart, they're sins of the mind, but he was not hurting anybody externally, so it was okay. I'm okay spiritually because of this. Listen, even if that were true, it's not, but even if that were true, every sin of his is still a turning away from God to follow his own desires. Whether it's on the outside or the inside, that's the nature of sin. Saying that I am autonomous. Look with me at Romans chapter 1. I know you've seen this many times, no doubt, but we'll look at it again afresh to understand this turning aside to our own way. Start with me at Romans 1 verse 21. Paul writes, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged 
the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, think with me about the giving over here. It's judgment from God that he keeps handing them over to their own desires. But why? Because we exchange the glory of God for images. We exchange the truth of God for a lie. We exchange what is natural for that which is unnatural. We exchanged. But if we look back at our text in verse 6, we see that God has an exchange of his own. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God has an exchange of his own. He treated Jesus as if he committed our sins so that he could treat us as if we lived Jesus's sinless life. Our wretched ex exchange, that's what we saw back in Romans 1, our wretched exchange required God's glorious exchange and he made it freely from a heart overflowing with love for us. To answer our wretched exchange, God gave us his glory, glorious exchange, our sin for Jesus' righteousness. Jesus' death was ultimately accomplished by God. Not the Jews, not the Romans, and though it was because of sin, even that's not the final answer. No, God, the Father, is in charge of all of this. Punishing his sons so that sinners would become sons and daughters. So let us no longer worship and serve things that are created, but rather worship our creator for being so much more than a creator. We despised God with our sin, but he loved us by giving his son as our perfect substitute. The gospel says that we need the atoning sacrifice of Christ because we broke God's law and offended his character. And we could never be good enough to save ourselves. But the truth is also, as we think of texts like verse 6 here in Isaiah 53, the truth is that we didn't want to obey his law. It's not like, well, I, I want to do better, but I can't. The Bible tells us we did not want God. No one seeks for God, Romans 3. Chapter 1 of Colossians, we were hostile in mind, engaged, engaged in evil deeds. That means that we were hostile toward the God who made us. We didn't want his law. We didn't want him. But yet God sought us in Christ. Christ bought us. He paid for our sins. This love stands in a category all by itself. This cannot be said of anyone else. So what difference should this make? What difference should this make in your life this week? Think with me for a moment. How will this affect where your eyes linger this week? As you think about God's love 
and how Jesus Christ paid for your sins. He was punished so that you would not be punished forever in hell. What does that mean you do with your eyes? Do we really want to sin against the God who gave us life and salvation in his son with where our eyes linger? We should fear sinning against a God so good and so loving. What does this truth have to say when it comes to the words that you choose? The words that you choose online. The words that you choose with those who are closest to you. Those you're most comfortable with or those whom you dislike the most, how will the cross of Christ and God's love for us there determine what we will choose when it comes to our words or our thoughts or what people receive from us? Or what will it determine in terms of what you do when no one else is looking? What you do with your time, what you do with that recreational time that you have. We think that theology, sometimes in our flesh, we think that theology and the scriptures, yes, that's definitely for churchy things. It's definitely for what we do here. And yes, there, there are certain things like sharing the gospel, right? We want to make sure that we represent God well when we're doing churchy, religious kinds of things. But no, theology matters for everything. Theology matters for what we do think what we feel, what we say. It was said of it was said of Jonathan Edwards that his that theology was his application, and application was his theology, like he never divorced the two. We need to think that way too, don't we? And so we preach the gospel to ourselves, not simply so that we will uh, in that moment say thank you, God, but so that we'll live differently. We'll choose when we come to a crossroads, what do we do now? Where do my thoughts go? Where do my words go? Where do, what do I do with my time? The gospel matters for those things as well. And so preach the gospel to yourself. Go, go grab a copy of the gospel primer by Milton Vincent so you can rehearse to yourself the gospel. Get some great text from your, your, your fighter verses. I know you guys do here because we do that at Living Hope Bible Church as well. Pick up the app and start loading up your phone with gospel-rich texts so that you can have the gospel-centered theology that will make a difference in how you live your life so that you live it knowing that you are honoring the God who sent his son to be the propitiation for your sins. Why did Jesus die? I think this statement encapsulates the answer. God gave us life, but we gave him rebellion. So... God punished Jesus and gave us peace. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for giving us this text. May we worship you because of it. May we live humble, rejoicing lives lives that are circumspect, lives that reveal that you're not simply the one who has given us freedom from hell, but you have given us God. God, you've given us yourself through Christ. So may we rejoice in you. And may our lives reflect that you have 
renewed us. You've transformed us. You've made us what we could never make ourselves. When we didn't want you, you gave us a heart with new dispositions, with a new will that wants to do your will. So, Father, may this be a catalyst for great change in our lives from one degree of glory to the next. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.